Hello, and welcome to Future Food with me, your host, Annalisa Winther. If you found this podcast, it's probably because you, like me, are passionate about food and you're curious about how we can use food as a vehicle for change to build a better future. This has been the focus of my work for the last few years. I'm an ecosystem developer, and everything I do centers around how we can unlock partnerships and collaborations within the food system. In my consulting practice, I advise corporations and investors who want to invest in the future of food, but may not know where to start or need help figuring out how to best use their capabilities to make a difference and make an impact. I also coach startup founders in the agri-food space, helping them to attract the right investors and develop their leadership capacity. And since I started this show, many of you have also slid into my DMs asking me how I created my career and how you too can transition into a career working on the future of food. So I also run a one-on-one coaching program called Creating Your Career, where I coach individuals, helping them to transition into and build their dream job working on the future of food. The best way to think of me is basically as a matchmaker. I work with individuals and organizations, helping them to connect to the ecosystem and build long-lasting partnerships that lead to good business and even better impact. This means that I get to talk to all kinds of people along the value chain. It's literally my job to do that. And I started this podcast because I realized how siloed our food system is. It's big, it's global, it's complex, and it's deeply interconnected, and yet many parts of the ecosystem never talk to each other. I believe that the future will be built on collaboration. That's the only way we can really create impact at scale on the timeline that we need to make things happen. And I started this show to share the stories of incredible organizations that I was meeting through my work. These organizations are doing amazing work, and they have such a clear vision for the future, but they also need your help to make it happen. So in every episode, I ask guests about their vision for the future, what we're missing to get there, and what help or collaborations they're looking for. They even share their contact information, whether they're an executive or a startup CEO, which you can find in the episode transcript linked in the show notes. And the reason that I do this is to democratize access to each other and foster collaboration. So if you love the work that a guest on this show is doing and you want to work with them, you're interested to learn more, my invitation to you is to reach out. That's the whole point of why I'm doing this. The listeners of this podcast have also had such good success doing so. Some have written me sharing that they found jobs, they've switched career paths, they went to get a new university degree, they launched partnerships, and they even landed investments. Who knows what's possible for you? And I know from putting lots of deals together that there is no better way to connect with someone than hearing their story. When we hear someone's story, it plants a seed and it also just brings us deeper into relationship. So this show is all about making it easier for you to make a move and get that first conversation going. The last thing I'll say before we jump into today's episode is that this podcast is listener supported. So if you love the content I create, or if this show has created value for you, maybe giving you a great idea, influencing how you think, even prompting you to get into some form of a new relationship in the space, please consider becoming a subscriber and supporting the show for a few dollars every month. Your membership will give you access to every single guest contact information, episode transcripts, exclusive content, and premium perks. And 
You can become a subscriber by following the link in the show notes, and you can learn more about working with me on www.analisawinther.com. Now let's go ahead and jump in. Sarah Vachon is an olive oil sommelier and the founder of Citizens of Soil, a UK-based olive oil brand that sources regeneratively produced olive oils from female producers. Sarah has been named one of the top 100 female entrepreneurs to watch and is a member of Women in Olive Oil, a global network which empowers the education and advancement of women in the industry. In this episode, we talk about the fascinating history of olive oil, from its importance in global trade to its healing, health, and beauty properties. You will also learn why olive oil is about to have a movement similar to what we saw in specialty coffee and wine, as well as how you can make sure that you're sourcing the best possible liquid gold for your pantry. Sarah also dives into Citizens of Soil business model, which is built around sustainability and minimizing waste. We discuss the challenges related to being a woman farmer and supporting more and more women farmers to enter the field, dealing with olive oil fraud, as well as the climate challenges that have been making farming so challenging both in Europe and the rest of the world, from devastating wildfires to debilitating drought. This episode is guaranteed to get you excited and to open your eyes to a new aspect of this pantry staple. And I also want to add that if you're interested in regenerative agriculture, I'm working on an exciting project to scale regenerative agriculture in Europe that you can be a part of. It's called Top 50 Farmers, and it's focused on identifying 50 regenerative farmers who are role modeling what the future of farming is going to look like. We're talking about highlighting diversity across gender, background, crop, business model, all stages of the regenerative life cycle. If you know a farmer that you would like to nominate, follow the link in the show notes to register for our newsletter and be notified when applications open. We're also looking to partner with large corporations who are interested in sponsoring Top 50 Farmers and who are really focused on building the next generation of financing, as well as building regenerative supply chains. So if this is you, please send me an email at Annalisa at top50farmers.org. And without further ado, let's jump into this conversation with Sarah. Hello, Sarah. So excited to have you here to talk about all things liquid gold. We met on the island of Mallorca in an olive grove. So it's super fitting now that we get to have this conversation months later. Yeah, really excited. I know a lot of our best stories start from travel. So this is a good way to have met you as well which is also how your business got started. So could you tell us about how you made your way into the olive oil industry? Yeah, I mean, well, exactly to that point, my my husband met this woman on a ferry between Santorini and Crete, like almost 20 years ago. And they just became really fast friends. He started visiting Greece. She came to London. You know, a few years later, I got involved and we just kind of melded with this Greek family. And every year we were finding ourselves there around the olive oil harvest. They are small batch producers of wine, olives, random fruit, you know, kind of representing these like multi-generational small batch farms that you find across the Mediterranean. And they were making this really outstanding oil. And I didn't know anything about olive oil, but I considered myself a foodie and my husband and I had both worked in food and drink. And we thought it was just like delicious and outstanding. And we brought it back to the UK to some of our friends and people who worked in the food and drink space. And they were like, this is amazing. And we're like, yeah, why can't we find something that tastes like this here? You know, at one point we bought like 10 supermarket olive oils and we were trying them all on the table. And we're like, 
why does this taste different? Uh, so I went back to them this following year and I said, can we just get some oil from like 10 of your trees and we'll like bottle it up? And they were like, "That you don't know how this works at all, do you? <laughs> so I started to learn about the olive oil space. And by this point, you know, this is years has gone on, have gone on and I'm now working in sustainability and I'm looking at supply chains and traceability in supply chains. And I'm doing a lot of these interesting projects where I'm seeing a lot of the social and environmental impacts when you just completely remove traceability and there's no accountability, you know, these massive opaque commodity supply chains. And here are our friends who are in that business because olive oil is a commodity and there's a set price and that's all farmers can get paid. But they're making something to a really high standard because they're making something that a lot of it they're consuming themselves. The Greeks consume more olive oil per capita than any other country in the world by like, you know, quadruple. It's crazy. Even the other Mediterranean countries, they're consuming a lot themselves. It's going in the family and then some restaurants and, you know, local friends. And they're doing steps like farming, you know, trying to farm organically, remove chemicals, doing things, bringing in biodiversity because they want these other food and, you know, items on the groves harvesting earlier because they're getting a better quality oil, but they're getting less oil. But that's not being appreciated at the mill whenever they're going to go trade this as a commodity. So as a, you know, someone working a food and drink, I'm like, I can sell this in London. So this is how it originally started. It started as a project to want to help our friends get a fair price for what we knew was like a really, you know, outstanding or much better than any of the regular oil quality. And this was kind of happening during the pandemic. And so we had a little time on our hands and we were looking at other commodity supply chains and also looking at trends like we'd seen in coffee and in wine mm -hmm. uh, and craft beer. My husband came from the spirits industry and we were like, there's this whole artisan and craft and fair movement that's happened in these other categories, but it hasn't happened in olive oil. And here's something that sits in all of our homes and all of our kitchens. And most people don't even know really how it's made or that it has a shelf life or how long to use it and what they can cook. And there's so many questions. So let's kind of do what we saw happen in coffee, which I know you've done some great episodes on coffee. What's happened in that movement, you know, 20 years ago, can we bring this to olive oil, uh, bringing fair quality artisanship to the table? Yeah. And you're right. I'm also someone who's deeply obsessed with olive oil. There are two things I collect. If anyone ever comes to visit me and wants to bring me a present, I'm like, give me the salt, give me the olive oil. And when you have tried high quality olive oil, it is a life-changing thing. And you put it on any food, you can instantly taste that it doesn't need anything more. It's like the most brilliant. I don't even, yeah, I can't, you can hear my joy. I just can't even get over it. But I'm stuck when you said that you went back to your friends and said, can we just bottle this stuff? And similarly, didn't know at the beginning of this what the process actually looks like and what it actually takes to produce olive oil. So can you share with us what you learned in terms of what it actually takes to get this on our tables? Yeah, well, as someone who, you know, I grew up in a family that all, you know, my grandfather spoke about extra virgin olive oil. And I remember telling him when he was 90s, you can't fry with this. And he was like, what are you talking about? Yes, this is the only oil that I use. So I certainly had a lot of ignorance to it that maybe even a couple of generations ago understood better than we do now because there's so many more oils and so many more names for oils on the table now. But I wanted to be an expert in oil if I was going to be buying this, not just from our friends. I wanted to know, is this quality? I don't even know if this is quality. I think it tastes delicious, but just like wine, you can think that a wine is tastes great, but it actually has defects or it's not as great as you think it is because you just don't have the palate yet, which is fine. But I wanted to just know when quality was going off or, you know, all sorts of things like that. So I started 
because it was a pandemic at the beginning, I mean, before that, even I was starting to get every book I could possibly get my hands on looking for networking groups in the olive oil space, which I found some incredible ones. I did an olive oil sommelier training in Spain, and I met all these international judges because there's olive oil competitions and anyone who was in the space, I was finding them on a podcast, watching milling videos of production, which is the most boring thing to watch on your lunch break whenever you're sat at home during the pandemic to be like, what sort of mill are they using here? But I became obsessed. I think though the best way to really learn from my side was not only doing the harvest and participating in it, not just watching from afar how I had done, going down and then actually doing this across regions because everywhere does have their own style. They have their Mm. own varieties. They have their own traditions. Culture in olive oil is very connected. I mean, the Mediterranean cultures are bound by this liquid gold going back to antiquity. However, each one has a a slightly different way that they approach it. And you just learn, even by talking to two people in the same area, you learn different things. So I started dropping down in regions, meeting as many producers as I could, tasting every olive oil I could find, and really, I think, approaching it like holistically at olive oil and not just like, I'm a Greek olive oil producer, or I just do Italian, looking at South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, what can I try? Wow. All right. I'm going to dive a little bit deeper into so many great parts of that story. First is <laughs> what the heck is an olive oil sommelier? How did you find out that was a thing? Where do you go? And also you mentioned that Yale even has an institute that's like focused on olive oil. So what's what's that world look like? Didn't know about it before. Obviously, I knew of sommeliers from the wine space, but I I think I came across it just on my discovery and like, how do these people, who are the judges at these, like who makes up these awards? Who are these people? Are they just like chefs and, you know, food and drink folks or what? Like what sort of qualifications? And so through that, I found out that there were all different sort of tasting qualifications. Actually, there's some that are really advanced. I have a a friend who's Sicilian and British and she's on this like two year program. That's like an advanced taster, which would essentially put her in like the top tier of people who can judge oils and try them. Olive oil has a lot of fraud. So there's been a whole community, well, not a community, like network and criteria put in place to prevent fraud that again has been going back since antiquity. I mean, the Romans were stamping their olive oil with traceability stamps, which is fascinating that they were doing it all the way back then to know where their oil was coming from. And that's because fraud has always been there. So because fraud is an integral part of how this commodity has been run, there are tasters and people who are certified to look at defects, know what actual extra virgin olive oil should taste like. And so that's how I kind of got introduced to this space. Wow. It's a whole universe. And it is similar to coffee and wine, like you're saying, even if we haven't totally thought of it in that perspective of each region is specific, each tradition is specific, the flavor palette, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The university in Haiyan in Spain has a really important program because they're the biggest producer of olive oil in the world, that region. So it's sat there with all the big companies. The University of California, Davis has one as well, Yale. And actually the one of the advisors to that institute I was speaking to, he was in London recently. And he said, how do you call yourself a sommelier? Like, yes, you're certified, but he's like, you're actually an oleologist which is taking it to, he's like, you're not just pairing food. He's like, what you do is not just like, this should go with this cheese and this should go with, you know, this sort. He's like, you are in the milling, like you're looking at the temperature, you're looking at certain varieties, you're specifically a part of like that whole process. So it's like, what I do, I think is less at the table pairing, although I absolutely love to tell people bonkers ways to use olive oil and with their food and things they would have not done before, like in a martini or in coffee. However, I am very passionate about how it is done and produced. And I do care about the blending and the varieties. And that's why I have a range. I'm looking for that sort of thing. So it goes a bit beyond 
just a pairing. But yeah, it was interesting to hear that from somebody who is such a regarded expert in the space. Totally. And you you mentioned there's a lot of fraud in this space, and that's even gone back to the antiquities. What is the big issue that this industry is so built around fraud? Yeah, I mean, it, it really has gone back to the beginning. I mean, I mean, I guess it's most documented during the Roman Empire, which was fueled by coffee, wheat and wine, like grapes and olives. These are the things that really they, they expanded everything with. And they had a lot of I suppose, colonies in North Africa and that they were putting all over, you know, Spain became this huge area of like the biggest at that time man planted forest in the world was like the south of Spain, which still has loads of what we call the sea of olives. Whenever you drive through it, it's really an ocean of olive trees. But there was always deception. There was always places that produced it better, like some Istria in the Croatia in Croatia, which I've just sourced an oil from, has was known back then to be a really high quality place that the Romans liked to get oil from. So there's always been places that did it better. So there's always been that competition. And what you see now and for the past few decades in olive oil is well, one, the deception of traceability. So Italy is exporting more olive oil, Spain is exporting more olive oil than they dare produce. They're getting these from other other regions and putting them in Turkey, North Africa, and they're bottling it up. Now they're often legally disclosing on the back, like this is from EU and non-EU sources. That's what it will say when you pick up your bottle at Costco in the US, I can tell you. But it will be under a label of a beautiful, you know, this classic Italian name where there's a peasant farmer from like a hundred years ago on it. And that's not how that oil is done anymore. So that fraud still exists. And then people have tampered with oil, which is, I will say in Europe, at least it's less of a problem. The fraudulent, as far as completely putting in fake oils into what is classified as extra virgin olive oil, there's so much protection on it, but there's also just old oil, which is probably the number one thing that does go through because it at one point was probably extra virgin olive oil and you're consuming that. And we still consider that fraudulent because they are saying something has the health benefits and the nutrition and flavor that just doesn't exist in it anymore. So as a consumer going in the store, how do you know what is the real deal? If you really do want to buy extra virgin olive oil, what do you look for? I always tell everyone, even buy your cheap frying oil is look for the harvest date. So Mm -hmm. the harvest date is the number one indicator really of quality that you can see. And it's something that a lot of producers don't disclose for different reasons. What is mandatory that has to be on the bottles um, in the UK and the US is the best before date. And the best before date in olive oil represents when it was bottled often. That's only when you legally have to put it. Bottled doesn't really mean anything because this is a commodity supply chain, which people will hold on to oil until the price is where they want it. Right now we're seeing massive fluctuations in the olive oil space. So people will hold the oil six months, sometimes a year. Literally it's whenever the farmer or the mill is selling that onto the commodity then it's going on, it's being passed hands. And finally, whenever it goes to bottle is when that sticker's going on. So that oil could be three years old. It could be a mix of a couple years in there. It's not uncommon to mix what's left over from your previous harvest in with your new stuff because you don't want to waste it. You want to get that money. And so the harvest date will tell you how fresh the oil is. And you are looking for oils within 18 to 24 months of that harvest date. A lot of new producers are disclosing this. A lot of even some of the big companies are starting to introduce this as a quality marker harvest date. The next thing I'd say to look for is some sort of region specificity. If they're just going to say Italy or they're just going to say Spain, okay, but can you give us like a little bit, you know, again, this is if you're spending a little bit of cash on an olive oil. My God, if you're spending anything over $10, 10 pounds on an olive oil, you want to know where they should tell you a region, (laughs) like even Andalusia or Puglia or whatever. So you want some region because that just shows traceability. 
And then varieties is a really interesting thing that I believe producers should be disclosing because olive oil, like wine, like coffee, has a whole range of flavors and aromas. And sometimes people try olive oil and they don't like it because they find it really bitter or they find it has a weird kind of feel on the palate. And I'm like, that's like one, you know, that's like a certain type of olive oil, but that's not all of them. Or they try some that they think are too light. They're like, I don't get it. It doesn't have much. Some are fruity, some are sweeter, some are, are more punchy. And for you just to say extra virgin olive oil, that's just like putting wine on a bottle. Like, is this mm. red? Is this white? Should I expect like Chardonnay vibes or am I thinking of a Barolo? Give me a little bit of a direction. And consumers don't know that about all varieties yet. Like they've started to learn in coffee and they're certainly more familiar with than wine. So we can start to give them an idea so they can look for what they like and then buy what they actually want. So those are the main. The final thing I always say is do not buy something in a clear bottle. Extra virgin olive oil has a couple of enemies and one of them is light. And so whenever it's exposed to light, this is why most producers put it in a tinted, dark or completely opaque container that's um, definitely important to look out for. But I was at this incredible winery in Provence around Easter. They make award-winning olive oil, even though they're known for their wine, but they make some very expensive, very premium olive oil. I go for a tasting of their olive oil, not their wine. And I sit down and they have several different ones and they're all in clear glass bottles. And I ask them, the sun is shining. It is so bright. And I'm like, why do you have this? And I'm like, you know that this is degrading the quality as we sit here. And they're like, well, we tell, we give it in a box and we tell people to keep it in their pantry. And I've talked to a couple other brands that sell in clear bottles and they say this. So the expectation is on the consumer and they sell it like that because they think that consumers care about the color because they do, even though color mm -hmm. is no indicator of quality, people are looking for a certain color of olive oil. And so they want to see the color and, and experience that but they're not keeping it in their pantry all the time. And then I moved over to the restaurant after the tasting only to see that the bottles were sat all on the tables outside all afternoon while people were eating. And I'm like, this oil is just, I told them, I was like, it's degraded. I could taste it. Like it's going rancid as you have it sitting in the sunshine all day. Unfortunately, I know we have a few clear bottles of olive oil, which now I'm <laughs> very suspicious of. So that's a very good if tip. You, if you buy a fancy bottle and it happens to be clear, like you go to someone that just insists on doing that, which there's some really expensive premium oils that do that. And they're great oils. Keep it in the box and keep it in the pantry, but it doesn't know. give you a lot of flexibility. <laughs> what about acidity? Isn't that something that you should look for the percentage acidity on the back of it too? That's kind of a new thing. We happen to disclose it as well, but it can get confusing for consumers. But what we're looking for to be the grade of extra in the category of virgin olive oils. You're looking for something that's under 0.8% acidity. And acidity doesn't mean flavor, so it doesn't have anything to do with what you would taste. It's really representing the quality of the olives when they went into that process. So were they damaged? Do they have a little, you know, like maybe insect damage? Do they get a little, you know, any sort of thing just along the processing? That's reflecting that. So whenever you look at oils like the top oils, well, the top oils in the world are really coming in under 2%. Some, you know, I just, I have two new ones that I just launched that are both at 1%, which is crazy because it means these olives are pristine. Like they are picking out any fault, you know, hand picking in big bats of olives. Everything is going through as soon as possible. And one of the ones that I just launched, it's because they're doing it within 30 minutes. They have a mobile mill that they take out on the grove. So they're just getting it through instantly. That's a really hard thing to achieve for a lot of small batch farmers who are working, who don't have their own mill, who are just making beautiful olives. We don't have any that are above like 0.4%, but 0.8 is the, the limit that you mm. would, you could look out for. And yeah, you can expect that if it's below 0 0.4, 0 0.3, if you're good in 0.2 and 0.1, it's a fantastic, well, 
fantastic in the sense of quality. It might not be to the taste that you're after, but it just means the olives were in a great condition. Yeah. And I want to spend a minute more on how we as consumers going shopping, most of us have olive oil in our kitchens, as you mentioned, use it probably once a day. How mm. do you know what is quality or even experiment to start? Because on one side, I hear there's your de- personal definition of quality, meaning what you like, what your palate likes. There's some really heavy, almost spicy in the back of your throat, olive oils. And then there's some very light ones. Um, and color you talked about as a distinction. I know that some lighter ones also have been bleached and decolorized or something along those lines for olive oils. So color can be a little bit of a light color can be misleading too. But just to dive a little bit more into like how we know what quality is, what we should be looking for and defining for ourselves. Yeah. So first on the color bit, um, color is if it's extra virgin olive oil, if it's labeled as extra virgin olive oil, and, and that especially places like the EU, that's typically more protected. That does mean that it, it's produced without heat or chemicals. So it would not have any of the deodorization, bleaching, anything that you see that happens in refined olive oils. So if it is extra virgin and it's a lighter color, so if we're looking at just the category of extra virgin, color is no indicator of quality. What it represents is two different things. One, it's often like just the variety. Some varieties tend to have more of this like chlorophyll than others. That's really what it comes down to. I had a new producer in the north of Greece and I went like a month after harvest and her oil was already kind of like a light pale green. And I was like, which you would expect later in the year, but I was like, that's so weird. My one in Crete is still bright green and it's again, harvested, you know, same time, but one just so happens to have more, hers had more carotenoids, whatever, you know, a different compound that was giving it that uh, more yellow color than the green. So it's not an indicator of quality. I've had some outstanding, really pale, light oils that, I mean, still have color. They're not white. We're talking about like, you know, they're just like a yellow oil and they have been off the charts, fantastic. And I'm probably one of the worst defective oils that I had during my core section that they sent was a really rich green, deep color. And it was completely faulty. So color is not an indication, but what it does represent usually is the variety type. Some are better and how soon from harvest. So my oil from Crete, for example, when I bring it back in a bottle and I'm so excited, I bring it back to London and it's still so bright and like, or actually in their case, it's more like a, it's bright when it comes out the mill, but it stays like this rich green and I get so excited and it's just gorgeous to look at. And I take so many pictures, but it naturally fades and mellows out, you know, in a very short time, despite me keeping mm. it in the cabinet and insisting it can't sit on the table. It's just like a wine that opens up when you talk about it that way, that it, it changes as soon. It's a live thing. It changes as soon exactly. as it's been processed and harvested. And it is more like a juice from that point of view that, it, you know, like your orange 100%. juice, if you have fresh orange juice, it's going to go bad. It's not something that can sit there forever. And I think that is something that I always, when I do tastings with, with consumers and at events, I always say at the beginning, this is a fresh fruit juice. And we need to think of it like that exactly to your point in order to set it up for all the other rules that apply, you know, keeping it out, how long it's going to last. And I think the comparison to orange juice is also really interesting. One of the things in a course that I took, we talked about the difference between extra virgin olive oil and refined olive oils. And it, they compared it to fresh pressed orange juice and a orange soda. Like when we're talking about health benefits and we're talking about quality, this is the difference. Like, yes, you can still use one. Of course you can use these refined olive oils that have gone through this whole deodorization and bleaching process and it's stripped of all of their nutritional value, but it is orange soda pop compared to a fresh pressed juice that is offering you vitamins and nutrients. Totally. So if color is not the indication of quality, 
Is it the other things you listed that we should look for? Or is there anything that's the home run quality mark of this is going to be good. This is something you should support and buy. Other than what you're just looking at, like I said, you know, looking for harvest date, specificity of region and, and those sort of details. Once you get it home, it's about opening up. And the first thing you should do anytime you buy a nice olive oil is get it home, open it up and pour it in something, probably like a wine glass or a small cup that you can get your nose in and swirl it around that glass a bit, put your hand over the top, swirl it around and take a smell. And that will instantly, you know, it doesn't take very long for you to kind of train yourself on what that should smell like. General people who've never tried an olive oil before, I just have them smell. I'm like, what does it smell? Does it smell like life? Like this is a living thing. And if it does, if it smells like a plant, a vegetable, an herb, a fruit, grass, we're done. There you go. It in theory is extra virgin olive oil now, like it's fresh. If you just smell it and you smell something that smells like just a kitchen fat cooking oil, something like your pantry, something sometimes like cosmetics, a bit of just uh, lard almost, you're like crayons is a common smell. You're like, this is lost it. It is rancid. It's it lost its life. So this is no longer this like living, vibrant oil. So yeah. the first thing I always tell people is just smell it. So you mentioned health and nutritional benefits. And Mm -hmm. I want to dive into what that is associated with olive oil, because there have been different kinds of health claims out there, all kinds of headlines, but it's also something that's been called liquid gold for thousands and thousands of years. (laughs) And it's actually extremely multi-purpose. So can you just go through a few examples of why olive oil, let's start with health, why olive oil is considered so good for health? I think I recently did a talk in, um, like at a food and drink conference on the future of fat. And I was the one representing extra virgin olive oil. And there was somebody, you know, from butter and refined and animal fats. And I was like, I have the sexiest fat of all, because in this case, this is the healthiest fat you can consume. This is a gorgeously healthy fat. And the reason that it's that is because it is unrefined. It's coming from a fresh fruit. We're not talking about a seed oil, even that's, you know, in the other plant oil category that's had to undergo heat and process, like how does a seed have liquid? Like, so, you know, this is when we're talking about a fresh fruit juice. So you're getting some of these polyphenols, which is the really the magic that makes extra virgin olive oil so extra. These polyphenols are essentially antioxidants. They are things that help protect plants from animals eating them <laughs> in the wild. And so, especially whenever you're doing an earlier harvest oil, you're getting something that has loads more when it's still you know, not even ripe on the tree yet, and it's bright green, it's really protecting itself still, those you're just getting loads of antioxidants in. And so even though it's a small percentage of the oil, so separate the fact that it is just a healthy fat, when you look at how it is as a fat, it has these added nutritional benefits, that are the reason that people that medical profession, I mean, every time I do in store tastings, inevitably, someone comes up and says their doctor from a usually it's usually related to cardiology, but we get emails sometimes as well about they're on, you know, this sort of immune treatment or whatever. And they're looking, they've been recommended to use not inflammatory oils and look at extra virgin olive oil and switch that in their diet. And so they're the ones that are often really interested in the polyphenol count and the acidity and the things you're talking about that the normal consumer, you know, might just be more interested in flavor. They're really looking at the health benefits. Um, So this polyphenols are it, but what's fascinating about polyphenols and to your point that they've always extra virgin olive oil has always been regarded as almost this cure-all. I mean, if you still go to rural parts of the Mediterranean, it doesn't matter your ailment when you're in Crete, like extra virgin olive oil will fix it. Like it, it's used on babies for cradle cap. It is used, you know, for upset stomach. 
If you're constipated, you have it. If you have diarrhea, you have, I'm like, how does it fix both sides of this? It's like every sort of thing you can possibly imagine. Oh, you're shaky. Oh, you have an upset. Your throat is hurting. All of this extra virgin olive oil cures and, and to skin things as well. So, but what's interesting is even though that's been going on forever, they're still discovering some of the polyphenols, what they are in olive oil, because some of them only exist in olive oil. They don't exist in other plants. And one of those that's really interesting that I, what I found the most fascinating whenever I started studying about olive oil was one called oleocanthal. So oleocanthal was only discovered like in the early 2000s by an American doctor who was overseas in Italy for a medical conference. He's at lunch with all these Italians having a meal. Anyone who's had meals with Mediterraneans in that in the certain areas can attest to, they kind of push their products. He tries the olive oil and he coughs and he feels a sensation in the back of his throat. And he's like, that's so interesting. Like that resembles something that I've been studying back in like a lab, you know, in a, a lab study. So he um, takes it back, assesses and looks at the compounds. And it turns out that the compounds in this olive oil are actually the same as what would be low-grade ibuprofen. So it is this mm. anti-inflammatory compound that was giving him the same sensation that he was getting from these tests that they were running with ibuprofen where they were swallowing it without water. So it was like tingling the back of the throat. And so they started to see how some of these, many of the anti-inflammatories that are in olive oil, which it's quite famous for, but they're coming from this oleocanthal, which it's not like if you have a headache, you can take a shot of olive oil. However, throughout your day and throughout your meals, you are getting this like, plant-based natural ibuprofen at a very low, low dose. That is one of the many miracles that has come out of this. And there's still more to be discovered, I'm sure. I know it's, it's also what I find so fascinating is that it's been around for so long, but it feels like it's not totally understood of why it has always been tooted as this amazing thing that's worth so much and like the essence of life going and on. And I know yeah. too, that it's been used for your hair. So all kinds of things for like hair growth, even I think to help that. And then also to put it on your skin, if you have dry skin or if you have anything going on. So what about in beauty? Yeah, I mean, Is there anything else you see? Yes. In the Mediterranean cultures, you use this for all sorts of things like that. So everyone uses it on their, their hair. Yeah. Their scalp to what you're saying. It's done with babies. It's done as you, as you get older skin, literally everything you can look, there's whole skincare lines all over the world that are dedicated as olive oil as their central ingredient. I know a lot of celebrities have done this as well. What typically happens in the Mediterranean is the waste product from producing olive oil. So the oil that is not extra, the oil that is like the virgin that doesn't quite make the grade or last year's harvest or ones that just aren't the same quality. Those are turned into skincare products. I have recently heard of somebody that's doing like a really premium soap off of very high-end brand new, but I'm like, this is a great food. Like, why don't we eat this? I don't know that it has the same benefits at that level for your skin. I mean, I'm sure it does. They, they said, of course, it makes your skin super soft. And I would believe it. I can say that we always use olive oil soaps, but especially when we're in Greece, I'll even use them on my hair sometimes. And it's so weird because I'm like, it's just a bar of soap. But it's somehow like I need to just stock up and bring more over because you can just use it as like a full soap that just does everything. It's like that Dr. Bonner's, you know, that's like a fix all. That's what an olive oil bar of soap, like you don't even have to condition your hair. And I have like really naturally wild, dry, you know, crazy hair. I can attest that it does work in that way. Although I don't know the science behind the skincare side. Mm, totally. So I want to go back to how olive oil is actually made and what the process looks like. Cause it comes from this fresh fruit, but it ends up in this liquid form. So can you walk us through what the production actually looks like? Yeah. So until like the past 
hundred years or 50, actually the last 50 years, olive oil was really made the same way for like hundreds, if not thousands of years, it was made the same way as in people every year at the same time, there's a harvest once a year, they were all coming together, collecting the oil for the olives from the trees, pressing them in different ways and separating the, the water from the oil to actually get the olive oil. Do we know when olive oil was first discovered or invented? Is there, has there been a date put there, on that or? There is a, not a, like a hard date because it was like thousands of years ago. I won't, I won't exactly say the number, but it's, it's like five to 8,000 years ago, man started working with olives. And uh, shortly after we turned it into an oil, actually it, before we were using it to eat, I know it was actually used as skincare and to light temples and things like that at the beginning. Olive production is still used in producing fuel. It's, it's not uncommon. And one of the biggest insults you can give in the olive oil space is to tell someone their oil is lampante. Lampante means lamp oil. And it's still used. It is actually a category when we look at olive oil and we say, what are extra? What is virgin oils? What are these refined? And then there's this whole other section that's called lampante. And it means that it's not fit for human consumption. And you can actually mark oils. And often when we talk about someone's oil, that maybe someone is touting their oil to have all these health benefits. But you know, there's a lot of these people that sell on these supplement sites and things. They sell this really expensive olive oil. And we're all like, it's lampante, like it is not edible. It is so defected. There's so many defects of this oil, not fit for human consumption. So that's about lighting, but okay. So back to the olive harvest. So it was made for the same way for a very long time. Typically it was like what you saw were these stone mills where like a donkey or a person would be pulling and milling just like you would wheat or other things. So it would be grinding the olives and then taking the liquid and using what is the traditional press, which in most places looks quite similar. I still go to these olive oil museums from, I've been at ones in Crete and I just, you know, in Spain and they all look the same. And it's these big woven mats and they put the mash of the, the ground up olives between each one of these woven mats and they'd use a press to actually push them together. So a big lever would push them, squeeze the mats together. And then you're getting from that, the liquid would start to run off and that's where you're getting the liquid that becomes in the olive oil. So this is where we get the term press. This is pressed oil mm. and the first press would be that first one that you did and then you flush it out. And then they'd usually kind of flush it out with water and separate the water from the oil. This is where that term comes from and why I say this is how oil was produced until pretty much recently in the past few decades is because now we've moved from that press to gorgeous, clean, stainless steel machinery. And this is to really make it a far more hygienic process to control quality better, to control temperature. But the term cold pressed or pressed in general, first pressed has remained in our in the vernacular, especially that consumers and press continue to feed it and talk about this all the time and other brands do as well. They, they say that they are doing cold pressed, first pressed oils. In the EU, the definition of extra virgin olive oil is that it is made without heat or chemicals and it is from only that first press, but we are not using presses anymore. Now what happens to walk you through that process is depending on how your farm is, if you're a big farm or little farm, so if you're a family farm, most of my farmers, we are going out and we are putting these big blankets on the ground between sometimes it starts into September all the way to about Christmas. And you are hand picking or combing out with rakes or, you know, using really your hands to get these olives out of the trees. Sometimes you're getting on ladders. Some of the bigger places, 
they have these things that kind of wrap around the trees and they shake the trees. That's more on the industrial side. So it's giving a bit of stress to the trees. Sometimes we use electric rakes, which just helps you kind of comb a bit higher. And then some are like fully machined. They put the groves now are no longer these beautiful spread out trees on an olive grove. They are rows. They, oh, you'd almost think it's a winery. It looks like vines if you go through a winery and then you go through these intensive olive groves. They look very similar. I'm like, is that wine or olives? Oh no, they've just put the trees in tiny little rows and controlled their growth. Either way, you're picking these olives and you're getting them to mill. And the key thing in quality production of olive oil is you're getting it to mill within 24 hours of that picking. So most of us are actually doing it within hours. My new Spanish producer that I just launched, they have a mobile mill. And so they're doing it on there within 30 minutes. That's crazy. I mean, it's amazing. You get the best quality, but the rest of us are usually typically taking to a mill or, you know, at the end of the day, when it gets to the mill, olives are cleaned. You're separating out the leaves and anything that's come in between it give them a little wash, then they get kind of crunched in, in a way to pop the, the seed out separately. So then the seed is going, the little pip inside is going separate and it starts to turn into a mash. And these little broken bits of olive become what looks like a tapenade. And so you see this bread kneader often kind of, um, we call it the malaxer and it starts to turn it into a tapenade. And the moment you see the glisten of oil start to come out of the fruit, you know, this, it's worked up this liquid, then that is extracted. It's going through a centrifuge where the liquid is going one way and the pulp, that mash is going another. And then from the liquid that is run through a separate centrifuge, which is then separating the water from the oil. And that is how you get virgin olive oil. So from this point, this is used without heat or chemicals. And all of this is to get us to the stage of a virgin olive oil. Now to get to the refined oils, they are using that mash, what's left over, that is going out a separate entrance, you know, of a, a totally different way. Often it's, it's, I think there must be some quite strict ruling about how it has to leave the building and it goes out like this tube dropped off in a truck, like an open truck, sits out there all day. You fill it up with all the, the waste and that goes on to the refineries. Often it depends how, you, how the farm is done, but that is what goes on to the refineries. Sometimes you take it to local animals to eat. And then the pip itself is often used to make these olive like bricks for fuel. One thing I find so fascinating about that whole process is in the beginning, you talked about how the trees are stressed and olive oil trees are some of the most resilient crops there are. They actually do well under stress, which is not every kind of crop. No. Can you talk a little bit more about the relationship between olive oil trees and stress and the conditions where it's good and the conditions where it's bad? Yeah. So again, with the similarities of wine, anywhere that wine grows, you could typically grow olives. It's the same parallels in the world. So that's why I was saying even a place like New Zealand, you know, California has some Texas where I'm from has now a little olive oil scene across the Mediterranean, Middle East. So anywhere that has that dry, arid Mediterranean climate. And that's because just like grapes, olives thrive under that stress. They do need winters for sure. So they're not living in like tropical places. They do need to be dry and they don't need year round. They, they need a bit of winter. They can handle a little bit of freezing, not too extreme of a freeze though. And depending on the variety, but they want long, dry, hot summers. And so they, and certain varieties just work better. I mean, one of the solutions that we're looking at right now in places like Spain that are having severe drought year on year is looking at the varieties from North Africa that are already up against the Sahara and are surviving. You know, they, they've come to understand and, and thrive and or survive, I suppose, in those sort of environments. But what is interesting is if you take it too far and you completely stress the olive tree, it's not going to produce 
because you know, if you think of it like a, a mother in a time of war and crisis, you know, they're, they're not just going to be like giving all this stuff. They're not giving all their fruits and flowers out, out away. They're like holding back and they're literally, you'll see them like kind of killing off their, their future olives. So we are looking at whenever we have drought, you are getting much less yield out of those years. However, what we've seen has been really high polyphenol olive oils as a result. So my producer mm -hmm. in Portugal last year had a terrible harvest. It was really sad. She had, you know, it was a, another year of drought. She's in the same area that's like Andalusia. She's not too far from Sevilla, from the border. Bad drought, really low yield. But what came out was like outstanding polyphenols. That doesn't always mean that it's going to be a great oil because it can be really bitter and really overly peppery. Um, mm. But again, if you're really into the health side and you like that flavor palette, it's great. So what we're seeing in a lot of these places is less yield, but what survives is actually really great. But mm. we just need trees to kind of be able to, to produce if we're expecting the same production levels that we had on better years. And because olive oil trees are so resilient, they live a really long time, don't they? They can live thousands of years. I love going when I'm in the Mediterranean. I often go try to find the oldest olive tree in that area. I, I recommend to anyone who's on a Mediterranean holiday. I know you're going to go to the vineyards. You're going to do a wine tour. Go do an olive tour if you can, but also just look up like old or ancient olive tree. And if you're in a lot of these Greek islands in Spain, in the south of Italy, like literally the whole northern Mediterranean and the Middle East, you can find some really great old olive trees. So I saw one in Crete that was, they think it's over 3000 years old. I know there's one that I'm really wanting to see in Lebanon. That's like 4,000 years old. Yeah. For my birthday, I went to the one in Crete. I was so excited about it's I went wild. To Portugal, 2,500 years old. That's actually what's really sad about what's happening in the South of Italy right now. They have a virus that has swept through it and it's destroying these really old ancient trees, but they're not always as productive at that point, but they do still produce oil. And that is what is crazy to like have oil from a tree. I have some oil. I mean, it's from last year now, but I have oil from that tree I met, met in Crete because I felt like it was a an encounter. We had a moment. It was a beautiful moment. And yeah, I have olive oil from a tree that's over 2000 years old. But I'll admit when we went to this ancient olive grove in Mallorca, yes. I had a similar experience of feeling like you're among these ancient trees that are thousands of thousands of years old. And there Absolutely. are also efforts around the world to keep them safe and, you know, maintain them as opposed to cutting them down or whatever else. But it is a magical experience and they look like art, yes. but they're also kind of gnarly. <laughs> they show their age. They are like a beautiful wrinkled, like grandmother. They are wrinkled. You're just like this is yes. showing everything, but they're still so strong. They often start to hollow out because they lose what is called the heartwood in the middle. And so some of these you can walk up in because they've lost so much of the wood on the inside. And so it's like a hole and you're like, what has been in this tree? Like, you know, how many wars, what all has this seen? How many like civilizations have gone through since this tree has been standing like that the Romans planted or something. It's just wild. And I know similarly, like some stress for the tree is good stress. Like you mentioned, you have to cut it to a certain size, but can you yeah. talk a little bit about how often it's produced because even if it bears fruit every year, you don't harvest it, right? Necessarily, depending on what production methods you follow. Yeah. It depends on the production and the farmer, the variety. Some of them they're able to produce from the same trees every year. Some it's usually goes, it's like a bumper, like crash, crash a, and a bumper situation. crop year. Yeah. 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 Great year. And then there's an off year, but that's just 
expected. So like Greece, we had a really incredible harvest. We've had some great harvest the past couple of years in Crete, but last year was an incredible harvest and they're already letting me know it's not going to be as good. Like we're not going to have that many olives this year, but what's sad in places like my farmer in Portugal and in Andalusia, like they are having year after year of really slow harvest because the trees aren't able to really recover. And so whenever you have these big production years, uh, and especially when you're pushing the trees a lot in the intensive farming, they produce a lot and takes a lot of synthetic kind of fertilizers and things to keep them producing at that level. Otherwise they just need a little rest. And speaking of producers, your company is quite special because it's citizens of soil. You particularly work with women producers from these Mediterranean nations for the most part. Why women? It actually started quite organically in the fact that the first producer was our family friends in Crete. And it was Maria, who my husband met on the boat, who was his friend. And it was her groves because in the Mediterranean, often, especially in a place like Greece, everyone has groves like everyone you meet is like oh I have all of I of course I have trees it's like a joke that you tell kids like ask them how many trees they have before they get married you know it's that sort of thing everyone is coming with trees but in her case her father you know gave her her trees he's still alive it wasn't like she had to wait till he passed on to get the trees and so they started working on them when she was younger together and so these were her trees so started off with a woman and then once we started to expand we realized well we were taking all of her oil and we needed to get more oil from different producers, I already had this criteria that kind of came from her and, and what I was wanting from the company, which was I wanted, you know, outstanding high quality oils. I wanted them to be regeneratively farmed. I wanted them to be quite progressive on, on the environmental side, but also have, have this quality that backed it. And when we went looking for people, there's not a lot of women in olive oil, but when I would find them, they would tick all of the boxes that I was looking for. You know, they were minimizing their any chemical use or had already gone organic or were converting their groves. They were really progressive on the nutrition side. They also were like wanting to make something for flavor and nutrition and not just yield. And so when, when we find these women, they would often already be just outstanding. So in the olive oil space, it is very male dominated. Whenever I go to the mills and do the harvest, it's often I'm the only woman there. And these women feel quite isolated in these communities, despite the fact that it's often where they grew up. Like this is like their family, you know, these are the people they went to high school with. They're still showing up at the mill as the only woman. And almost as a lack of confidence in that, they are educating themselves. Whereas as my husband always describes it, he's like, these men are just taking what they learned from their father and literally just starting to, to do olive oil, like exactly what they learned, carrying on, maybe incorporating a few new things. These women are doing hours and hours of courses and reading books and being like super self-taught as well as like looking for external resources to bring up their confidence and feel like they can own this in a world that they're quite excluded from. And as a result, they are doing things not in the way that was necessarily handed down, but in the best way possible going forward, because we are looking at a different landscape in farming than we were 20, 30, 40 years ago. And as we all know, everything that happened in agriculture after World War II was just devastating to our fields and our traditions. And so taking it back and then applying some of the new techniques that are more progressive and regenerative is what these women were doing. So now I was like, you know what? I just like, they're great to work with. 
They are extremely talented. They make high quality oil and I can create this community where they feel like they can use each other for a resource. So now I have like a WhatsApp group and we're talking about a trip next year together to one of the groves so we can all meet. And they feel like, oh, I'm struggling with compost and they can kind of talk to each other about the different challenges they have on their grove. So it's really mm -hmm. fostering this community that otherwise they just don't really necessarily, some regions have it more than others, but some do not have any other women around them to, to work with. Why do you think there's so few women in this industry? It depends on the part of the Mediterranean or, you know, even expanding the Middle East, you know, I've, I've looked at like Tunisia and other places like that. These are just male dominated, you know, cult, the cultural fabric of how a lot of the things are made up. And that goes to land ownership. The ownership of land is really connected to the ownership of sadly women. So a lot of women just weren't given those rights. And, and I think farming is still seen as, you know, we see this across Europe. We, you know, we went to those chats together about how few farmers, the small percentage of farmers in Europe that are female, it's seen often as a man's job because of a lot of the physical work that can be involved with it, but also just like culturally, the women that I work with don't see it that way. They want mm. to farm. They love farming. They love that connection with, you know, I, a couple of the women that I work with, if not at least half of them were not farmers at the start. They might've come from farming families, but they had corporate business jobs. They lived in the capital. One was overseas, one was in Athens, and she just returned back to take over her groves to get this connection to land. There's no reason they wouldn't want to do it except for society has told them it's not their place to own and be working in the field. And I'm doing a lot of work with this on top 50 farmers. And it's totally true that there's just a huge movement of people that want to go back to the land, but also want to do it in progressive way that is better and makes sense going forward. Before we talk about what it means to be regenerative in the olive oil space or the olive groves, I was really struck when you told me that even finding women in this field, like we're talking very small numbers when we say there's not a lot yes. of women in it. And I really want to accentuate that for the listeners that it's not like, oh, even 1%, that feels like maybe even a stretch. You told me it took you a year to find a woman in Spain, one of the largest olive oil producing countries. And in Croatia, in the region you are, there's just two women producing. So we're talking small numbers that need to be supported and encouraged. A hundred percent. Some places, actually, Spain has a lot of women involved in olive oil, or so I was told. And then I went to this massive conference, like one of the biggest olive oil conferences. And I took a video of like how many, I was like, man, man, like doing a little Instagram reel about just like there was men everywhere. I think, yeah, Spain and Italy probably have more than some of the other areas. But yeah, I, I touched down into regions. Crete is one of the biggest producers, certainly for Greece. It's known to make the, this really high quality oil. It has a really supported, you know, a good network of, of olive producers there. And finding women, that one is quite cultural just because of how society is there. And Maria, our producer who owns the land, is very fortunate that how her father really wanted to include her in the decisions of the land that he was giving her early on and that she has a husband as well that views this as like a partnership with her and he's working it as well but he's you know she has more trees than him and that's just what it is that's how they entered their marriage everyone enters the marriage with trees and she had more trees than him so yeah, yeah. croatia was such an interesting one where it i went there because it is this region that for seven years in a row had been voted the top region for high quality olive oils, much like Tuscany has had this crown for a long time. And I was like, where is this place? I've never even heard of Istria. You know, I, I didn't know anything about it. And I touched down and going around asking, so who are the women here? Who are the women? And really two names came up. And I was like, this is just bonkers. <laughs> 
it is bonkers. It also is important that you have a high standard. So you're looking for regenerative olive oil growers, and that's not necessarily everyone in the industry, which also narrows down the pool even more. But it also strikes me in that story that you mentioned how important it is for people to have access to the land and whether it's a gendered issue. Yes. But at the same time, if you're a small producer, being able Mm -hmm. to access land and keep your land compared to the huge commercial growers that you're up against is another huge topic of conversation definitely for another podcast. But I think that's also important to point out that that's a big deal that she was able to get her own land that she can steward and continue to steward for years to come. It's very hard. And we see people all the time in the olive oil space losing their land or frankly, what even happens because often this land was like handed down generation to generation, the price to even produce olive oil that it costs and the effort that goes into making olive oil especially if you're playing on a commodity market is not worth that price that's paid. So I know that was talked about in the coffee podcast that you did. These farmers aren't making enough. So what you get is people just abandoning the groves. And here are these incredible life-giving trees that have so much to offer us with their fruit and their oil and calorie nutrition packed ingredient. And we are letting it shrivel up and fall off the grove because it is actually not worth the price, the input cost that it takes to harvest it, you know, the labor, the production, which is really sad. And you end up seeing a lot of people abandon their land. And I find it a a weird, uncomfortable situation when you find all these people from the UK and America has all these shows about getting these little rural houses that have been abandoned in in Sicily and Europe. Get a Euro house in this small village that once was a thriving agricultural community. And now it's not because the people who are from that place can't stay there because they don't make enough money farming and in the agricultural scene as small batch producers anymore. Unless you're playing a big game, you're not able to accept that commodity price. Mm -hmm. And that's where regenerative comes in. It's all about bringing back life and so many different ways and on different levels. So what is being a regenerative olive producer look like? Yeah, this was something that, again, I knew nothing about until I worked in sustainability. And in the sustainability world, there's all these buzzwords all the time. There's all these different trends. And there's, if you work in it, there's always people, someone's the champion for like carbon and someone's like big on organic and someone's all about, there's all these different sections that you can be interested in. And when I heard about regenerative, it felt like this feels like it's solving a lot of the problems because it's addressing carbon it's addressing biodiversity, it's addressing erosion, it's addressing nutrition, it's addressing like all of these things. And not to, of course, organic just comes with that. But it felt like a lot of the issues that we were seeing could be resolved by regenerative agriculture, no matter where it was. Now, why I think it's important in olive production is because the Mediterranean, these arid dry zones are on like the front lines of the climate crisis, especially here in Europe. This is where the places Every day I'm on a call. I just had a call with a farmer this morning and we're talking about fires. There is fires breaking out across the Mediterranean. When this ends in the autumn, there's going to be crazy floods inevitably because everything's been scorched earth. And the moment we get rain, it's going to flood through the town because there's nothing to grip it and hold on to. So because these environments are so arid, they are eroding. One of my farmers in Crete, whenever I first called her up and was just talking to her before we started working together, she's like, Africa is on my door here in Crete, like the Sahara, like the desert is coming up in this area because the way we've been farming and because of the heat and the climate crisis. And she's like, and everyone in my community 
is terrified by it. Like all these farmers, yeah. she's in an agricultural community and they're all looking at it being like, it's eroding every year. They're digging this up and they're starting over and they're like, it's what's going away. It's turning to sand. And she's like, and yet no one is looking at like this sort of solution. And so she's really the only one in her community. There's starting to be a couple others that are doing it. But I found this in, in Andalusia as well. Like this one farmer was like, his neighbors were coming up thinking that the land had been abandoned because it was so green. It was this oasis in the middle of Andalusia, which was otherwise a desert. And he's like, they're coming over being like, oh, is this plot for sale? Because there's like all this green life, but it doesn't look like, and he's like, no, this is like, we're like rewilding and, you know, making olive trees in a, in a forest, agroforestry style. So that is really important because it, especially in those regions will address we have to have ground cover. You know, we really cannot have bare soils in a place that's arid and has no rain. It will prevent a lot of the flooding that we have that's really bad in these like hilly communities, as well as building back that biodiversity that's been lost whenever we went from small batch farmers, which is what I work with, to like these massive monocrops. Like when you look at the south of Spain and Italy that are olive trees as far as you can see. And that's mm-hmm. the only thing that's standing. Yeah. And what does it practically look like? Because it's trees. So many people might think regenerative agriculture, a field, you know, like hay, wheat, something else. What does it look like when you're dealing with these trees? How can you make that regenerative? I always go, I'm there with farmers before I ever buy from them just to like see the land. And I don't look at the trees. The first, I look at the ground. The first mm-hmm. thing I do is kind of assess the ground coverage, if they're using ground cover, if they're tilling, how much they're tilling. So whenever we're looking at an olive production, we are the first things that I start is lower no tilling. So how are we preserving? Like, are they using ground cover, or just letting like wild wildflowers grow and things come in? Then I'm looking at making sure they're not using any sides, which is, you know, the, any fertilizers, insecticides, things, uh, synthetic fertilizers, sorry, anything synthetic really is what we're on the lookout for. So what would be considered like EU organic is, is fine to use. Then we're looking for incorporating grazing animals. Most of our farmers are able to incorporate that. I think we have two, definitely one that isn't able to right now, but she's bringing in like organic manure. So, but I, there's such a value to having the animals on the land itself and, and what they bring just by like their little hoops going around. But of course the, their wonderful manure as well as biodiversity. So I also am looking at like, is it just olive trees or do they have citrus trees? Do they have herbs? Are they growing something else around here? And that's really important. And that's something that our our farmers in Crete, who are our original, who are like our family, who we can work much closer with and we're out there a lot. They're really proud of what they've even been able to do since we started working together just a couple of years ago. And whenever I go out there, they show me the new trees that aren't olive trees that they've bought, that they're now, they have like, you know, big bay trees and citrus trees that they've started to put around, around the groves. They already had a great model because as a family, there's different plots. So her brother, you know, has a winery and there's vineyards right next to the vineyards kind of make their way through. They have loads of wild herbs just by how, how her father had, had done the land before, but biodiversity is such a key thing to look out for. I mean, I am, I love when I find a bird's nest in an olive tree, which is a whole other issue and all of, but whenever I find it, when we're harvesting, cause it's a sign of life and we get so excited and, you know, you, of course you like want to like protect it out there, but anytime you see snails, lizards, like any reptiles. My gosh, to see a reptile is like really exciting. So you're wanting to see something that is showing life in your groves. Yeah. It's farming with nature and farming in supportive life, which is a totally different way of operating than chemical agriculture. And I also want to shine a light on your business model, which is pretty unique. So of course you're sourcing from 
these nations that produce olive oils and you're extremely focused on partnering with the small producers who are women farming regeneratively. So from the point of view of how you help them, let's talk a little bit about the services you provide in terms of marketing and logistics. And then I'd love Mm -hmm. to dive into how us consumers can interact with you and how you approach that side of things. Yeah. So, I mean, the business model is that I source directly from these farmers. We don't go through middle people. We try to make it as seamless as possible for them. So we actually buy it in bulk containers from them. So they don't even bottle it. Part of that is because when we started off, I was really concerned about our carbon footprint as a business, just as a separate sustainability point and not wanting to be shipping glass that was actually made in France all the way down to Crete and then sending it to all these different places for them to bottle. So I was like, I'll just get them to send the container in bulk to us. It would also make it really heavy if you sent that glass all around and had to transport it from one place to another, which would add emissions. That's exactly why the carbon footprinting from the very beginning, even though we didn't, we've just done it as a business this year, but I thought about it from the start and was thinking, I don't want to be sending all these products all the way to the other side. So it's great from a carbon perspective, but also a, a quality perspective. It gets there. There's a consistent bottling. You know, everything is done. I can always check it at the final step to make sure that this is the oil that I had agreed with the farmers. So I buy direct from the farmers, bring over in these big containers, bottle everything in the UK. We do it in bottles and pouches. And that is because, which I have just to show you what I mean by pouch, I have, uh, this is one of our, our pouches. And then this is like the bottles that it comes in. Um, Beautiful. And this is be- yes, this is because we do subscriptions through the letterbox. So here in the UK, everyone has a standard letterbox size and we can just slip it right through. So people can go on our website and subscribe to olive oil and it lays flat oh and it just God. goes in. Doesn't take any extra packaging as well because it's uh, it's not glass, which is really nice about the subscription in the pouch. And so they get this, they can do every month, every other month and try different oils. So this is a way for me to work with farmers that are really small, who I wouldn't otherwise necessarily be able to like do a big run and put in a retailer because they might only make 400 liters. That might be all I can get from them or a couple hundred liters, but I could put it in one month subscription or you know two or three month subscription for my customers here in the UK. Our mission here is to turn this commodity into a community. And so sending people an oil every month, they get to know the farmer. There's a little card about them. There's a recipe and telling the stories of these people and also letting people as consumers, we get to try different oils. You don't know. It was funny. I switched from one Greek, literally one oil from Crete to another oil in Crete. And we had a couple messages about this would taste more bitter. Like they picked up on like the small nuance of how it was a slightly different oil. And of course it said it was, but it it was so interesting because I was like, these ones are so similar, but the fact that they picked up on it shows that the consumers are along for this journey and they're trying the oil in interesting ways and on its own. So they know when it tastes different, which is a blessing um, when you're trying to build a business around flavor. I love what you said of turning a commodity into a community. That is beautiful. And what we really need to do with so many of the commodities you mentioned the coffee episode before that's with coffee collective, another very good yeah. listener to, or listen to pair with this one, but yeah, that's a hundred percent, a big thing. Also, I had no idea they had standard letter boxes in the UK or mailboxes that you can think I of know. that and how brilliant that you thought of it from the beginning that you can seamlessly get it in and not have the mailman or woman run into any issues. It's really great because people now have gone back to work, you know, at the start of the pandemic, but it means they're guaranteed getting delivery. Uh, Yeah, standard size. And then the pouches we actually take back. So they have a little information on the back and they can just pop them back in the post to us with a free post address, which is something also that exists in the UK, which means 
someone can just write free post and like this like name on it and it'll come right back to us without them having to even go to the post office or get a stamp or anything or us having to provide a stamp it is means that any container is that run through the post office or is that something you pay for as a business to enable recycling and that you, you can return pay, the packaging it, it's done through the post office the address which we but we pay for but then whenever they arrive back, we actually send them to private recycling. Currently, we're using TerraCycle, but mm-hmm. there's another recycling company that we are going to be moving to um, that just enables us to make sure that everything in this pouch is broken back down and reused in the system. Yeah, so we can close the loop, even though we realize we are using plastic. Olive oil is a very particular ingredient, and we can't use any compostable. We can't use anything that is non-virgin plastic. Unfortunately, at this time, like it hasn't been tested enough. Olive oil will leach certain things. So the plastics that we use are a certain multi-layered plastic that have a little aluminum in them in order for it to actually not degrade the oil or get um, absorbed into the oil, which means, and it keeps out the air. So when people are refilling, I mean, bag and box is like the future of olive oil. Every, like it is the best way to uh, keep out the air and light uh, whenever you're refilling oil. Wow. How many tries did it take you to figure out that was the right packaging fit for all the sustainability goals you wanted to meet? I was lucky because I was working at a sustainability company at the time and I had all these incredible consultants around me. And I would just ask them, you know, looking at 10, I'm looking at this. And, but I also knew from the olive oil space, the reason we didn't go with 10s is because, especially in the larger format, air is along with light and heat, air is something else that degrades olive oil. And so whenever you have these massive tins that people are working their way through, even a month in, but certainly in the time it's going to take them to get through that, the quality, you can taste it. I've had containers that I've just like left open. And at the end, you're like, it's a completely different oil than it was at the start. So just like we see with wine, moving to bag and box, you know, wine is something that what a couple days after you open it, you can't have it anymore. You know, it's, it's gone off, it's lost its quality, but you put it in a bag and box and it can last up to six weeks imagine that with olive oil, it just extends the life and the quality Mm. so much further. So I really knew I wanted to use some sort of pouch. It just took talking to people on sustainability to also, you know, this pouch is 15 times less carbon than our glass bottles. And that's purely on a container to container that doesn't factor in the fact that this has to go with so much wrapping around it when I send it to someone. Of course, we're using like recycled in that a nice paper and it's all curbside recyclable, but so much extra has to go with glass in order to prevent breakages in the post. And when you're shipping on pallets and everything, these guys are just like ready to go. Wow. I just want to acknowledge you for how deep you've gone in this field in a short amount of time and also how thoughtful you are around your business model and how you have it make sense in many different ways to hit those goals. And I know that you're starting to be recognized for it, particularly by retailers. And I thought that was very interesting that one, congratulations, you've been picked up by a big retailer in the UK, and that's a fierce Mm. competition to make it in the olive oil section, but also that more and more retailers are actually looking at bringing on new SKUs or units in the grocery store of what they're going to put on their shelves based on sustainability metrics like circularity. Is it produced by women? Is it regenerative? You know, they're, they're getting serious about buying from these kinds of producers, which is so helpful. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, so we launched actually with both our bottle and pouch from farmer that I sourced in the North of Greece for uh, Waitrose, which is, I guess, in the US, if we're talking to US people, it would be maybe like a central market. It's like a really upscale, but you know, really quite a large supermarket chain here in the UK. They're known for outstanding quality, but it's still a big group. So it was 
overwhelming and amazing to get listed there so early on in our journey. And for that to be, we're in all these lovely independents and then a couple of high-end department stores, I suppose, like Selfridges and Fortnum Mason, and then suddenly launching in a supermarket. But they are one, just like actually most of the bigger companies that we work with, they have their own sustainability goals that they're looking to do. So they are wanting to bring minority businesses to the table, be it circular packaging, be it something around regenerative, certainly supermarkets for a while have had like wanting to have organic, but they have their own goals and they are also doing their own carbon footprinting. So they're looking at things like this. So for us to bring in something, I mean, this bottle in the pouch, yeah, it was the first in the category. It's the first in olive oil in the UK to hit a supermarket shelf. And it is a big win for the supermarket because they are trying to work on more circular. I mean, they get a lot of flack all supermarkets because we say, you know, they take on all these brands that are doing terrible things in the world and have slave labor and all sorts of things involved in their supply chains. But there's definitely progress being made. And I think they are using what they see as I was just on the phone actually earlier today with another supermarket brand who's like, they see us as a challenger brand in the space to create a bit of disturbance on the shelf, but also because they can't get these massive oil companies to shift quick enough so they can just bring us on to be a skew that is offering, okay, we have this regenerative or, okay, this is a female owned grove, whatever, whatever it might be, whatever they're trying to fill, but it's good to have all of that in our arsenal, but it wasn't a marketing exercise. It was literally me making the business extremely difficult from the beginning. My poor husband who was doing a lot of the operations was like, why are you making everything? Why? Like nobody knows where you bought this envelope from that. We're just like going to send like an internal business. Like nobody, why do you have to make it so difficult? Like even like pens, I was like, we can't just use like any pen, you know, it was like every decision, which was me being a bit too vigilant, especially at the beginning, but wanting to I would disagree with you there in my coaching practice. I work with a lot of startup founders on getting really clear around their vision and their values, because when you are doing entrepreneurship and deciding to build a company, you have to be so clear in what you want and steadfast and confident and uncompromising, because if you want to build your dream, that's what it takes. And it is in the detail. The devil is in the details and it is the living of your values of saying, if we're really going to make a difference, it matters what envelope it is. Otherwise we're not walking the talk. I think it's fantastic and exactly what you should be doing. And it's what many of my clients do the same and figuring out how do we cascade that down? Well, they say it with consumer, like with people as citizens, it's like every pound you spend, every dollar you spend is a vote that you're casting for the world you want to see. And when you have a business, it feels like that is very, like that's something I think about with every purchasing decision, be it buying, wanting to buy a used laptop. I've been complaining that here in the UK, you don't get any tax incentive to buy a used mobile phone for your team or buy a used laptop. And yet that's what we should be doing. And only if you buy new, do you get the tax incentive back? And I'm like, this is absolutely crazy. So it's little things like that, that you carry in, which have nothing to do with my, the farming side, but it is the wanting to make a difference with every pound that you spend. And especially when we're asking our consumers to pay more for a premium oil, I want to make sure that we're delivering. And this is not some Instagram brand that is just highlighting, you know, has a nice aesthetic. I realize our products do look beautiful. I I made them that way, but it's not like a shallow, just a marketing exercise. Everything under it has to back up that purpose. I interviewed Klaus Meyer for the podcast too, and this isn't his quote, but we talk about the idea that eating is an agricultural act. So every time you eat, or you spend a dollar, you are voting for the kind of world you want to see. It's exactly what you said. And Mm. I'm curious what your vision is then for the future of the food system in some 10 to 15 years. 
I do firmly believe that regenerative is a future path. It is what the organic movement started to do, but wasn't able to complete. I think that regenerative agriculture is absolutely where we're all going to, which is why when I started the business and actually had a talk recently with some people in the impact space, I'm like, I don't want to be known as like the regenerative olive oil. I don't want that to be the only thing that this business is built on because I actually hope that in 10 years, they all are, or like a huge chunk of them are. It'd be like basing your whole business now as a food company on being organic. Okay. You and like half the other skews out there. I really do think that regenerative is necessary from a, a nutrition perspective, from a, God, we haven't even got into the conversation of what impact the agricultural and how our groves are done that affects your, your health and your immune system and, and all those sorts of things. But I do think it absolutely solves a lot of those issues, as well as from the environmental perspective. And that in turn supports the social, like the social impact side. There's a reason that this sort of farming can like enhance those communities. So regenerative would be the thing I would hope happens in the next few years. And what do you think we're missing to get there? There's loads of organizations that are in the space. However, I feel like there's not enough connecting them from a government perspective down to small producers. So what I think is missing is just more help for producers to get to regenerative. What I, I mean, I recently was talking about all the climate issues that are happening in the Mediterranean in this moment. And the government is not doing enough to mitigate the fact that every summer these communities are burning down, are having massive floods right after, are losing their harvest. There's just not enough resources. If you don't need to give them necessarily cash to, to make this happen, although that is very, very helpful, even putting more educational resources, which is what I've seen in a couple of regions, like Croatia, for example, has had some really good support go in there and, and talk to the community about regenerative agriculture. But Things like that, just like the education side, massively has to happen. So then what help are you looking for? Is there anything that you need that listeners can potentially pitch in with, connect you to? What would help Citizens of Soil on its journey? I think one of the things I connected with you at the beginning was about this like future farmers, farmer, top farmers in Europe list, because things like that, I really love this idea of spotlighting farmers like we've done with chefs and giving them this, well, the credibility that they deserve for their skill set and what they're offering us and the art and, and everything that they're bringing to the table as well as the nutrition. So I am looking for opportunities like that to get my, to spotlight my farmers more. I mean, one of the things we do in our comms and our marketing is really try to tell their stories as much as possible. So something like that is really exciting, but also I'm building a bit of a a group with my farmers to share. We recently had a chat about what sort of resources that they want to progress them on the regenerative journey because they're all on that journey, but at different spots and having different struggles. So anyone that can help, particularly in regenerative agriculture in the Southern part of Europe, it's a completely different ballgame what they're dealing with here in the UK and in parts of America. Like I said, the, the erosion, the droughts, the, the fires, the floods that are happening in the Mediterranean and for that particular type of agriculture, I would love anyone who um, has any sort of connection in that just to courses that we could send them on or experts that we can invite into our group and, and, and get to consult us on some things. So, but also, I mean, you have, you've talked to some incredible brands in, in food all the time on your podcast. So collaborations with brands that share our ethos, you know, we're not looking at doing marketing collaborations again with any like shallow Instagram brand, but we're looking at ones that are super inspiring. Like a lot of the ones you talk to, to do 
yeah, different food collaborations and how can we also share resources to progress the space, be it in packaging or on the farming side, or even how we do supplier contracts to benefit farmers. Super juicy. Listeners, be on it. <laughs> let's let's get these producers some help and also tell their stories. And yes, yes. as part of Top 50 Farmers, we are looking for regenerative farmers across Europe who are anywhere in the life cycle of the journey and nominations for that will open in 2024. So if you know a farmer, you can go to www.top50farmers.org to check it out and see. And I will definitely send you the applications that you can nominate some of the farmers in your network. Yeah. Oh, you know, I'll be the first one. (laughs) I know. I don't have any doubt. If someone would like to help you with any of this and get in touch or has a connection to a resource of any kind that could be of use, what's the best way for them to contact you? Yeah. So I'm on LinkedIn. You can also, if you get in touch through the business on Instagram at citizens of soil or on our LinkedIn page, I I see it. That's me. I'm here, but also you can just email me at Sarah at citizens of soil.com. That's Sarah with an H. So yeah, just drop me a note. Or if you're just, you're a farmer yourself, or you know someone who has groves, I'm always looking, like I said, I do work with female farmers, but I still love to visit and chat and fellowship with men in the space who are doing really great things as well. And we can learn together. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on and just giving us a crash course on olive oil. I have Ah. a lot I need to attend to in my own olive oil pantry now. Thank you. All right. That's all for today. What'd you think? If you enjoyed this episode, leave a five-star review or a comment with your thoughts. You can also send me a message directly on LinkedIn or Instagram. I'm Annalisa Winther on both platforms. I also love hearing about your wins and what inspired you about this episode. So please share that with me as well. If you really liked it, consider becoming a subscriber of the show. Doing so gives thanks to me and also supports the creation of more awesome content like this. You can sign up to become a subscriber using the link down here in the show notes. And if you'd like to learn more about working with me, you can read about my coaching programs and investor services on my website, www.analisawinther.com. Thanks again for listening and a reminder to hit that subscribe button to be updated about new episodes. I'll see you next time.